I read a lot of, of, of the prophecies of indigenous leaders, um, spokespeople, perhaps shaman or, or, or spiritual leaders of the past. And, and there's one underlying, I guess, message that comes out, whether it's in South America, whether it's in Lakota country or wherever, is that there'll be this time. And they, they, they were talking about this four or five hundred years ago. Mm. You know, a lot of this is documented. A time when indigenous and non-indigenous would come together and they would find a way to, you know, protect, protect, maybe not the right word, but I don't know, find solutions and prevent that sixth extinction. Metcalf, welcome to the Naked Guru Experience. These are conversations of philosophy, psychology, and spirituality with some of the most unique minds on the planet. David, I've been really excited to have this conversation. I'd just like to tell you that. It's, um, I've been reading some of your, your work. I've been watching some of your YouTube uh, stuff. And for me, uh, I don't want to paint you something you're not, but for me, you're like a modern day Indiana Jones. <laughs> and the stuff, the stuff that you're up to is just mind-blowing, really. Um, I, we both share in common that we've uh, come to live in Bali, and you've lived here now for uh, about 11 years, is that right? Nearly 12 years? In Indonesia, yeah. Seven years in Bali. Seven, seven years in years. Bali. Before that, like, you were in Jakarta, right? That's right, yeah. Okay, perfect. Years. And so, um, yeah, you, you make this big journey over here. and from, from, You're from New Zealand. Yeah, um, you're from England, and you know what to expect, and then it becomes your home, and it becomes your life, and you do all mm. these extraordinary things. However, I never managed to get into the jungle as deep as uh, as you have, and um, and so we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about everything that you've done in the past, uh, what you're up to now, and then some of your more thoughts, philosophical or whatever, or you put your personal thoughts on the future. Mm -hmm. So I'd just like to start briefly with, how did you end up here? Um, well, it goes back to, I was working in the corporate world for, oh my God, 20 years. Mm. <laughs> I think back on that. Um, yeah, I worked for a company, UPS, that many people I'm sure would recognise, American Transport Company, and I, and I, I was sent up to, to Jakarta to work for them back in 2001. I'd never been to Indonesia before. Right. And so, but I travelled a lot, travelled in many countries, and so of course, I sort of got out the Lonely Planet at the time and started reading about <laughs> Indonesia, and Flicked wow. And started to realise what an incredible country it was. So, and of course, being a traveller, as soon as I arrived in Jakarta, started to look at the map and started to plan out places to go. And so, yeah, so it was a wonderful opportunity to be able to explore parts of Indonesia and have the security of a corporate job and a you know expat package and all those things. So, so yeah, and always being a photographer, I'd grab the kids and the camera and my wife and, and there's a traveller as well, and off we'd go. And so we. Yeah, it sort of started to fall in love with Indonesia back then, actually, and travelled to some kind Th of This was holidays at places. first, was it? Well, yeah, so at any time, there's a lot of public holidays in Indonesia, as you know, <laughs> right? So, um, 
So, you know, combining public holidays with some leave and things like that, we would always take off and go travelling around different parts of Indonesia. So Perfect. started to discover the country back then and the people and the cultures and so forth. But, of course, I had a corporate job, so that was, my, I guess, my priority in raising kids and all that sort of stuff. But, mm. yeah, whenever we'd get some spare time, off we'd go and kids loved it. You know, it was always an adventure for them. And they were younger then, though, right? That's right, yeah, yeah. My daughter was about five. And my son was about nine or ten. Yeah. Um, around that age. So, yeah, so, yes, I guess at that age it's, it's much easier to... So you were it. combining your corporate job life with UPS at the time, right? That's right. With your photography as a pastime, as, a pa as your personal passion, as your art, your art form, right? Exactly, yeah. So, so photography has been a hobby uh, and a passion, I guess, since I was... Well, in fact, since I was about nine years old, I went to, to Sydney. My parents took me over to Sydney and I had a little camera way back then. So... And whenever I've travelled, I've always had a camera. So in Jakarta, I was obviously my job was the corporate world, but 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 I um, yeah I was taking all these photos and going out to these places. So I thought, well, I should do something with them. This is the film days back mm. then. What were you taking photos of? Well, mostly the landscapes, the people, the culture, the different islands. That right. We so so I did a couple of exhibitions in Jakarta. I produced some calendars, um, and uh, yeah, and sold a bit of my work just to kind of cover the cost of the film and all that sort of stuff. And, and didn't miss New Zealand or. No. No. <laughs> it no. didn't look back, right? No, no, that's right. And what about the, ki the family, the kids? They, did they ever want to go home while they were... No, no, they, they, they loved it, yeah. They, they, as I say, they just saw it as one big adventure. Mm. So, and, the, and, of course, the International School in Jakarta is a great school, outstanding. So, yeah, yeah. So they got really good education. And, you know, being, a, you know, being around, around expats from all over the world and all that kind of stuff is such an interesting experience for them. Yeah, I've heard you say, or, or I've read you say, that uh, you didn't want the traditional expat life, though. You didn't just want to go and sit in the in a villa. You really wanted to go deep into Indonesian culture and people. Is that is that right? What was the inspiration behind that, then? That, that's right. Well, I think in all my travels, I've always found the most rewarding experiences are those that when you spend time with people and you get away from the sort of tourist places and things like that. So I've always kind of taken the, the, the road less travel. That's always been my philosophy of my travels. Mm. And so that was the same that when I came to Indonesia. So, like, for example, in Jakarta, we just didn't live in an expat compound or anything like that. That's not our kind of thing. We lived in a kampong in Jakarta. Oh, really? So, yeah, I mean, we traditional had a, housing, yeah? Well, we had, no, we had a nice house, but when you walked outside the door, you were right in the kampong. So, right. And the kids, and we'd go for walks, you know, with the dog into the kampong and things like that. Mm. And, and um, you know, so there's all this this, you know, I guess, uh, Jakarta life going around, uh, was there all any, around us. So. For you, was there any culture shock? I know when I came to uh, Southeast Asia, I lived in Thailand for 10 years, and for me in the beginning, there was a huge culture shock, a huge difference between my Western life and now what was my Eastern life. Was there anything like that for you? Any culture for me, shock? Or? For me, it wasn't so much. The, the culture shock was more doing business. Right. <laughs> or not doing business um, as it might be <laughs> well yeah so I, I try and put uh, western solutions onto Indonesian um, you know problems right and I realise after a while hang on this just doesn't work no. you know, I, I need to you know listen a lot more to the local partners because we had a joint venture company back then so, so I, I did that I realised I've got to learn from them and I had one right. sort of mentor this very lovely man Javanese man and he was fantastic and he really taught me a lot of things so their way of doing it right that's right yeah. so once I started to tap into that then things started to work and I became I guess right. far more effective in my job right um, but no but in terms of traveling I mean I, I've just always been blown away by the the, the ease 
of travelling in Indonesia. Had you ever, before you came to Indonesia, those 11, 12, nearly 12 years ago, had you ever done anything with um, indigenous communities? Or you ever been interested in tribes and, and this kind of thing in, in your early, earlier life? Yes, well, it sort of started actually back in 1980, mm. a long time ago now, when I went to the States with a couple of friends and we, and I did a bit of voluntary work for Greenpeace back in those days. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. So you were an activist? That's right, yeah. yeah. I was an activist since I left high school, really. And anyway, so, so and I was very fascinated by Native Americans and I'd read a lot of books and things like that. So when I got to the States, I was very interested to visit a Native American reservation and so forth. But I didn't really have any connections or anything like that. But there was a an event happening in South Dakota on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation yep. uh, called a survival gathering that was organised by Greenpeace in conjunction with the, the Native Americans, the Lakota and so forth from that area. So I went to that, I went to that survival gathering. Right, and and what? that probably changed my life to some degree. That oh, was really? a very powerful experience. So what, what happened? Well, I met, I met a lot of Native Americans, I guess, for, probably for the first time mm. and started to see the world through their eyes and start to understand a little bit more about their perspective. It wasn't just about defending their lands from uranium mining and things like that, but it was the way that they were dealing with it and they were tapping into ancient knowledge and wisdom and, and so forth mm. to try and, and protect their lands. So was it a sad time for you? I mean, was it, or was it uh, just academic, it was interestingly academically? or It wasn't sad, it was, um, it was a bit scary mm. for them. Yeah, yeah. Not for me. I mean, I was coming in from the outside, and I remember at that survival ground, these B-52 bombers were flying low over this event because there was a there was a military airbase nearby. All oh, right. And they claimed that they were doing that to kind of harass the people and stuff like that. All oh, right. So it was pretty kind of scary because there was these sort of people around, and I really felt for them because I thought, oh my God, they're just trying to defend their land. Yes. And these guys want the uranium back in those days. You know, nuclear energy was a big thing. So. But, but, but I, I met a lot of really inspiring people, uh, not just Native Americans. Within the indigenous population, well. you mean? Well, both, really. Yeah, uh, in, inside so, and outside, people that were also activists in the, in the field. Or... That, that's right, and, and that probably for the first time I saw sort of indigenous and non-indigenous people working together to try and, and you know, prevent what was happening. So mm. there was a lot of the Greenpeace leadership were there at that time, and you know, Robert Hunter and... Um, and Rex Weiler and people like that. And I was very inspired by them. I, I just was amazed at their courage. Did you have any success? I mean, how, how did it turn out? This is all those years ago. How is it? Well, then what that actually led to was, I lived in Aspen, Colorado for three years and I organized a, 1983, I organized a benefit concert for, well, was for Greenpeace, but the money actually went to support land rights issues on the Navajo uh, reservation mm. in, in, uh, in Southern Utah. So. Um, yeah, so I, I went. Yeah, I went and organised that pretty much myself. I mean, right. We raised about twelve thousand dollars or something like that back in those days. So mm. that that money went to support support that um, that land rights movement, really. So. And how is it now? How's the situation there? It's um, it's deteriorated, or there's people still actively involved in it, or? Oh, I think the, you know, there's still a lot of problems, of course, especially yeah. on the reservations. But uh, but I think that there's, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I mean, it's. I think in some ways it's it's improved. The language is coming back much stronger now amongst a lot of the young mm. Native Americans, um, but I still think they're very very misunderstood by the majority of Americans. Are they still um, keeping with their traditions and their? Um... Well, what they do, they have these powwows over there. You know, many many powwows. And I went the last two years. I've been to a big powwow in uh, in Montana. 
Oh, so you actually are still actively involved now as yes. well, right? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So, so been... it wasn't just in the 90s, you, you're actually involved now, yeah? That's right. So wow. for the last four years, I've been going back, four or five years, I've been going back oh, to wow. the States and going <laughs> to powwows and taking people into the reservations and into the communities. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, so when I say actively involved, it's probably more, I've, I've got some Lakota friends, like Kevin Locke, I've become very good friends with, so I travelled with him mm. through the tribal areas a couple of years ago. Yeah. Just more of a learning experience for me and attended some of these powwows and just started to try and understand more about what was going on. So, mm. um, so whereas my kind of philanthropy works all here in Indonesia. Sure. So the States sure. has been more of a... Yeah, a, a learning experience. But that's a clear inspiration as well. It's, 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 this obviously seems for you like a lifelong thing that you're doing, not just from Indonesia. It's been from, from being young and, and, right. and being an activist. Exactly. You, you call yourself an a indigenous uh, population activist, is that right? Um, well, I think sort of cultural preservation is what cultural I'm preservation, to, right. to help and work on. So um, with your work in the States and now what you're doing here, there must be some overlap there, right? In, 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 in trying to preserve these cultures, you can see maybe it's a little bit slower here in Indonesia than it is in the States, but it's like a look back in time maybe. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap actually. And, and so that's another thing that I'm involved quite a lot with is bringing indigenous, different indigenous cultures together. Mm. And we just did that with the film festival, but also there's other things. And when I travel, because I travel to indigenous communities throughout Asia as well, I've been doing that for the last five or six years. And what I see is, you know, and I guess the privilege perhaps I have of being able to travel to these places and I see a lot of things and I observe and I, I see a lot of similarities between the cultures too. And then I kind of took it upon myself because I was thinking, you know, most of these cultures don't know anything about each other. Right. And here I am travelling, photographing, doing a little bit of filming, things like that. And I'm like, this is crazy. We've got to get the, the people together. I think it's so important. And mm. I've done a bit of that and seen, you know, tremendous... Yeah, a tremendous, um, well I get tremendous satisfaction from it, but I think it's great for the indigenous people. So when you when you say going into these indigenous um, populations and communities, I mean this is the real juice, the real thing that I was very, very excited to hear about, is you actually go out into the jungles of Borneo and meet these communities, and you're one of the few Westerners that actually gets in and meets the communities and they take you in and you sit with them. I mean, you, I, I only know it briefly, but th that's what you're up to, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing, yeah. Yeah, yeah basically. Um, <laughs> I was just there two, two or three weeks ago doing exactly that in the forest with the, the Dayak people and then sitting in the longhouses and having all sorts of conversations and listening to music and, and all sorts of things. Um, yeah, so but, but maybe probably one, I'll give you maybe a story or an example of, of that. Yeah, can you describe what it's like, the journey in? Like, how do you get there? How do you know where to go? And Well, it sort of started when, when I, first, I first went up to this village called Setelang up in North Kalimantan that when I looked on the map to find out where it was, I couldn't find it. <laughs> it you know, I, was just, I was just told to go there. So <laughs> I went up there with a friend of mine and, uh, yeah, it was, took a while to get there. But anyway, we got into the village of Setelang. We had a local guide that somebody put us on to. And we spent... Yeah, spent a couple of days, three days in the village, then we went into the forest nearby. They took us to this place called Tana Olin, which is the original right. forest up there, which they um, preserve, and they're very passionate about preserving that forest and so forth. So, so I started to learn about, you know, about that community and about the diet, that particular diet culture and, and their story. And they told me about this place called Longsan, where right. they used to live. So they've only been living in this village of Sedalung since the 1970s. Mm. So I was like, well, what happened before that? So we lived in this, we lived in the deep in the, in the jungle, basically, up near the Malaysian border. 
but we've never been back and we'd love to go back sort of thing oh well, why haven't you gone back? It's like, well, it's logistically, it's very challenging and it's very expensive. Sure. So I got this kind of crazy idea in my head. Well, maybe I can mount an expedition to take <laughs> you back, take some of the people back, you know. Yeah. So anyway, I Follow the that, Westerner. Yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah, but I sort of had that thought in my mind. And then, and, you know, obviously if they wanted to do that, because I guess it was kind of, you know, reopening perhaps the door that was, that was closed. But a lot of them were very excited about the possibility because mm. they dreamed about that place. And anyone about 50 years or older, you know, there's memories of growing up there. Mm. So, and there's a lot of elders in that village in their 80s and 90s. So the memories are still very strong. Mm. But, it, but it took them five years to leave that place. They lived in three different longhouses in the jungle and lived very traditionally. And they decided to leave for health reasons and, um, and also the, to, to give their kids an education. You mean that they, uh, they needed access to medicine or that the, the infrastructure no. was better in, the modern, in a modern community? Or? Well, they had all the, the medicines from the forest and all that sort of stuff. But if, if a woman had difficulty in childbirth or... And it seems that perhaps malaria came in there or something okay. from the outside. Right. And a lot of people died. And they, they felt quite helpless because if something quite serious was happening, it was about three or four days journey along crazy rapids to get to a hospital or whatever. So it was impossible. So mm -hmm. that was one motivation. And, and then I think people were saying, well, look, this kind of modern world's coming along now and, you know, it'd be good for the kids to get an education and that sort of thing. So it's a hard decision to make, I think. Did anybody stay or? No, nobody stayed right. in, in Long Sarn. Some stayed in villages down the river, but most moved to two different villages and one of those was Settler. So anyway, so I sort of got this idea of maybe of taking the back at some point and doing a documentary film. So, you know, about, it took about two or three years and I had to raise a bit of funding and things like that. And then that journey took place uh, just over three years ago now. And, and there was 15, actually there's about 20 of us in total, and including the film crew. But, but the, like a week before we did that journey, I didn't have a, a cameraman, I didn't have a film producer <laughs> or director or anything. <laughs> and I met a guy, this guy Eric Est, and, and uh, he was a friend of Robbie, who's a very well-known musician here from Nevercooler. And Robbie came on the journey, so he put me in touch. And basically we had a meeting and I said, do you want to come on this you know, journey up into the jungle, up through rapids and blah, 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 he'd never been before. Mm. You've got to give me a decision tomorrow. I can't pay you anything. <laughs> you <laughs> I'll pay for fun. your whole trip and everything, but, yeah. you know, I don't have a lot of money for this. But anyway, so he agreed, so we made this film long, so. But it was interesting because the whole story just continued to develop. Mm. So what So what? What happens? In the, is the film available, by the way? Is it, is yeah, it, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll put a link in, in the description where you can buy it or watch it. Uh, for our viewers, yeah, but it's on YouTube. Maybe you could tell YouTube me briefly how, how the trip went and. Oh, so so this is interesting. So I, and, and I wanted to make this connection with Native Americans. So I met this guy Kevin Locke, who was a cultural ambassador for the Lakota for thirty plus years, a hoop dancer, a flute player, wonderful man, incredible storyteller. So I met Kevin um, and um, and invited him to come out on this journey because I wanted to bring a Lakota or some Native American connection with the Dayak. You see. Right. So Kevin was like, well, he'd never heard of Dayak people or anything like that, and he was up for an adventure. So he came down, and then he came with us on the journey. And I wanted to bring music into this as well. So Kevin's a flute player, and Robbie's a musician, and the Dayaks, of course, are all natural musicians. They play the Sabe, the traditional Dayak guitar. Mm -hmm. And we had Pilius on that journey, and he's a Sabe player and a dancer. So anyway, so yeah, so we, we went up on this journey, but we really had no idea how long it was going to take us. We just knew we were going to some pretty deep jungle. Right. And rapids, 
That's yep. about all I was told. So, you know, we arrived and we get in this big long boat with four four outboard engines on the back, you know, pretty Do you powerful. have a guide at this point as well? You yeah, yeah, we had yeah. a guide that, that knew the, the community very well. Right. We could trust, yeah, that was very important. <laughs> yeah. So he kind of organised all the logistics. Anyway, the next thing, we're in this boat, we're going up these rapids and these guys are looking at me like, are you freaking crazy? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, to be getting us on this journey. And Eric, the filmmaker's looking at me like, this is amazing, but it's pretty pretty wild and crazy. <laughs> and we start hitting the rapids, and you know, it was, yeah, it was, I guess it was pretty dangerous. But but we had the power, and, and we just trusted in the guys driving the boat. They were very capable, and we mm. got through these rapids. And mm. funnily enough, one night we it was getting dark, and we had nowhere to stay, so we ended up staying in a logging camp of all things. A logging um, camp. Logging camp. Yeah. Oh right, in yeah. in a house though, in a, in a in a construction or yeah, just some basic sort of shelter. Right. We stayed in there. Yeah, there's no hotels on the way, right? Oh no, no, yeah, this is no. very wild country. Very place. deep, yeah. Uh, some Dayak people living in small villages, but very small. Mm. Um, so we, we had to go up two rivers, um, and the rapids got bigger and bigger the further up the, the rivers we went. Yeah. So we were lucky, though, because the, the, there'd been enough rain, so the rivers were high enough, because otherwise you have to get out and pull the boat all oh, the right. time. It could have taken, taken a week or mm. longer to get up. But it took us, we, we did it in two days, which is pretty Was amazing. there anybody else going up at the same time, or is it no, just you guys, right? Just us. Right. No, nobody goes up there. Right. No one goes up there. So, yeah, so anyway, then we got to the place where we got out of the boat, and we had to hike about three hours higher up to get to the where the village was. But you see, they'd walked out of there basically in 1975 and mm. never been back. So, so yeah, so most of the pots and things like that that were just left there. And so, so Peleus, who was the main person in the film, he wanted to go back and pay respects to his mother who died when he was young. And right. he left Long Sa when he was about 14. Yeah. So it was a really very uh, emotional, personal journey for Pilius. So for, for me, you know, probably at the end of all of that, you know, to see that man become like a 15 year old again, and he didn't sleep the whole time we were there, and he's showing us all the places he used Because of play excitement as a child. and. Excitement and reconnecting with the land and yes. the spirits of his ancestors and the. They took us up into the cliffs where they buried the people. Right. And that was a real honour. I mean, yes, no, nobody yeah. from how, how did it look, you know, when you arrived? Were the houses still there? Was there still constructions? Or no, there was maybe just, just trees overgrown now? Yeah, just overgrown. There was, right. Yeah, there was nothing much there at all. But to, they sort of to them up. it was important, right? Like, even though nothing was there. Well, that's, that's their spiritual uh, heartland, I suppose. You know, that's where all their ancestors are buried. You know, they'd, they'd lived in that area for thousands of years. Um, so yeah, it was very very important. And what to an them. odd, uh, an odd way of going back right through you. It's quite odd that that would oh. would, would happen. Like a, a a guy from New Zealand would come and lead the way for them to go back to the the homeland. That's very uh, strange set of circumstances. It right? was. It was very yeah. strange. Yeah. But I think along this journey, I, I don't know. To me, it seems these things are kind of mapped out, you know. And I'm just following along. How long was the total journey for the documentary? Well, the whole the whole trip took us about about six or seven days. We had to get Kevin back. Had to get on a, had to get out back to the states and that. But yeah, anyway, it was about six or seven days. Though. You said you trip. took music with you um, along the way. Did you get to play any music, or did you play any music in the village? There was always music. So when we got into the uh, forest, you know, up to Longsa, where we stayed, the Pilius would go and some of the dykes would go into the forest and they'd get some wood and they'd come back and they'd chop it up and the next thing they got a musical instrument back right. playing. Yeah. And then. And then um, then Kevin would play the flute, and there's some beautiful scenes in the film about that, actually. Right. And, and the theme song to the film is called Rimba, and you can see that on YouTube. That's at about 600,000 views. 
that's a beautiful song. Right. So if you just well, also Google put that Rimba. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Rimba, and that's a beautiful song written about the jungle and about the forest and preserving the... Now, this wasn't land. your first expedition, though, into the jungle, right? You'd done some before, some similar kind of things. Is yeah, that right? yeah, that's right. Um, but probably not, so, not as wild as that. So in other words, up to villages and then going into the jungle closer to the villages, that sort of thing. What do you find days. in common between these, these villages of how they're living? Can you describe to us how they're actually living? Like, because in my mind, I could picture, oh, they have like a concrete house, or do they have a wooden house, or do they have a cave? Well, it um, depends, really, so all the different trips I've been on. So, so for example, up in like up in the north, they live in a village, there's 800 people living in that village, and they just live in sort of basic sort of, uh, I guess you'd say... Well, I wouldn't call them modern houses, but I'd say by Dayak, perhaps standards are yeah. more modern. Yeah. And so, and they they have a school in that village. There's no Wi-Fi, but there's electricity at night. Is there well, TVs in there? Or? Yeah, yeah. So when yeah. I first went up, they didn't have any electricity in that village. Now they do. Right. But it's only turned on at night. Yeah. Uh, not not 24 hours. So, so yes, yeah, so they can watch TV and they love to watch football actually. Right? <laughs> <laughs> they love to watch. So they want yeah. So there's TVs, you know, but they don't watch a lot of TV, I guess, apart from the football. So. Yeah, but um, so they, they still have kind of, I guess you'd say, semi-traditionally. So, okay. But they're hunters and, and gatherers, so all the food they get is from the forest. Right. Um, so when they go want to go hunting, they go up into the forest. What are they, they hunting? What are they eating? Well, like, you know, wild pig and... Oh, really? And they have wild pig up there, boar kind of thing, right? Yeah, that's okay. right. Monkeys? They eat monkeys or no? No, not, no. not so much. No, I've never seen monkeys up there, but I'm sure there are. So every day they, they hunt so and... Well, not every day, no, only when they need the food. When they so, need it, right. But they're, they're farmers, so they've got sort of farms and they practice, you know, mm. burn and slash um, agricultural, sustainable agricultural. So they'll clear up a, a period, an area of land and then they'll farm that for eight to ten years. Okay. And then leave that and go to another area and clear that and then... And clearly you sampled the food when you were there. I mean, how was that? The food's incredible because it's it's all raw. It's all coming from the jungle and Do they the flavour it with forest. anything or...? Yeah, yeah, they do. They're, they're incredible cooks. What do they flavour with out there? Are you, is chilli? Well, are they growing yeah, chilli and things just like different, that? You know, different chilli and like sambal and, and things like that that they get from the forest. But that's an incredible experience, I think, to, mm. to walk through the, the jungle with the Dayak people that, that have that knowledge and that understanding mm. of... It's extraordinary. I mean, like, we would walk through and we'd see trees and go, oh, yeah, and then we'd just walk past. Well, they'll know exactly what they can get from that tree in terms of food or medicines. Yes. So they'll go... And, and there was one example. There was one tree I saw there with these kind of spiky, spiky sort of parts to it that you'd avoid, you know, and then Bundy, this guy up at another part of Kalimantan, next thing he's up on the top of that tree, chopping it down, slicing it, cutting it up, and inside that is this delicious uh, food, Oh, you know, and then an hour later we're cooking it up in these bamboo, long bamboo, um, you know, things on the, on the, on the fire, mm. and then they've chopped up and made some sort of sauce and that type of thing. But they actually put that in the bamboo too. It's absolutely delicious. So, are the Dayaks um, are, they, are they performing any kind of shamanism with the, with the plants and, and with these things from the jungle? Is there any shamanism? I mean, maybe we have different ideas of what shamanism is, um, but I, I guess it could be de defined as um, the use of plants to alter consciousness. I think that's maybe a, if we share that definition, we can go forward. Or you want to redefine it? You mean things like ayahuasca and stuff yes. like that? Yeah, they don't. They don't have anything like that. Nothing like that. Nothing no, psychoactive. Not, no, not right. at all. Not like in South America or no. any form of ritual, um, that kind of thing, voodoo or anything like that. I, 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 <laughs> well, there's certainly lots of rituals, yes. Mm. Um, and in fact, next month they have the Gawai celebrations throughout all the villages. And mm. that's a rice harvest celebration full of, of rituals and 
paying homage to the ancestors and one area I was just in, the, the, their god is called Jubata. So a lot of the songs and a lot of the, the offerings and a lot of the um, communication is with that, that god. Um, but look, it just depends really. I mean, obviously you've got sort of Dayaks that live in the city where it's quite different. Sure. And the more traditional they are, the closer they live to the forest and the land, then the more strong the rituals are and the more connection is with the spirit world. Obviously where religions come in, that's changed that. But then you have places where you've got the combination. You've got the combination of the Dayak culture and the spiritual beliefs along with Islam. So, for example, in central Kalimantan and Palankaraya, I've been to weddings there, and uh, like a Muslim wedding, and then they have a traditional Dayak wedding. Right. So they've got kind of two weddings. So yes. They, uh, so that happens as well. So one is more connected to a kind of paganism, is it? And, and the other one is... is you know, obviously Islam, it's a more established religion. You mean that they've lost some are more religious in that the religions come in and they've adopted those set of beliefs and kind of put the other ones on the back burner, right? Yeah, or either completely lost the traditional religion mm. um, or maybe a combination or some have been able to keep the, the, the traditional religion right. and not let the outside religions come in as well. Right. It just depends on the area, um, actually. But certainly, yeah, but certainly the, the Adat traditions are very strong in many parts of Kalimantan. And those are the places, you know, I guess I like to go where people still live in log houses and still live very traditionally. And I think that's the whole point. When they're left alone, when their forests are intact and, they, and the Dayak people can live in harmony and balance with the environment like they have done in the past. Um, you know, which is not to say, of course, it's a different world now. But, um, and, you know, they, they want their kids to be educated as well. But... But, but their culture is so, so very closely tied to the environment. So once you come in and start destroying it's the environment... It's fragile as well, right? That causes a big problem. Yeah. yeah. You had mentioned that um, you, you had visited a, a kind of an indigenous population that were living in caves at one point. That's right. So that's the Punan. So they're a very interesting tribe. They're, they're always very peaceful people, the Punan. They were headhunters or like some of the other Dyke tribes. How, how many were there in, the, in that community, do you know? There was, there was 12 different clans. Wow. Um, and there was about, there were more sort of families really. There was about 20 or 25, maybe 30 to each family. And they lived in different parts of the forest. So they still lived very nomadically and they moved around. And, and they live inside, by in, inside live, caves, you said? Yeah. Is that right? Well, they live in, in the caves, but they also live in these kind of, yeah, I guess like traditional um, uh, wooden sort of shelters mm. that they make, but they move around a lot. So they just—they're they're incredible the way they can just make these shelters, you know, with the roof over the top to keep them dry and stuff like that. And, and in comparison with the Dayak, do they have similar spiritual beliefs? It's a similar god, or is it completely different? Well, there's a—I guess like with a lot of most indigenous cultures, you know, there's like a supreme being. I mean, the, you know, the Native Americans call it like the, you know the great mystery, or um, Wonkin Tunka was there their supreme being, I guess if you can use those, those words. So yeah, so I think all of these traditional cultures have that and that, that's, and that guides them, you know, and that's who that they, you know, they, I guess, communicate mm. with. And then, you know, the connection with the animals is very strong. So for the Dayak people, the hornbill is, is like a, a messenger from, from the gods or from the upper world. Um, so, and, and traditionally, more so in the past, if the hornbill flew over your path or something like that, then you wouldn't go hunting that day. Or, oh, really? <laughs> there's lots of signs from the animals. Yeah. But, the, but certainly the, the people that are, are more closely connected with the environment still, still you know, believe in that and still look um, for those signs and so forth. You had mentioned that when you went to those caves, you were a bit sick and had to leave, right? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Well, that was interesting. Yeah, so I started sneezing. Right. And I think it was kind of more hay fever, probably. But anyway, but they, they, when they heard me sneezing, this, you know, white guy had come in and they'd never seen a white person before. So, mm-hmm. but, but I'm sure they must have heard that, you know, stories of the past where somebody comes in from the outside and brings a disease and it wipes out the, the tribe. So they, they, they were quite fearful of that. So they, I, I went in there with the chief of the Punan. This guy represents, kind of represents all their tribes. So he took me in there. Um, so, yeah, they were like, so we, we're not comfortable with that man staying you know, sure. any longer so we had to leave a bit earlier than so what you, we you thought. So you cut the trip short, right? Yeah. yeah, that's right. So, so it's interesting with, with those people because cause I met the governor actually in North Kalimantan before I went on that journey and I asked him, well, what do you think about these people? You know, And he said, well, we, we, we would like them to come and, and settle in a, in a village or in a, in a town and their kids could be educated, but we're not going to force them to. Right. Because what happened with the Penan in the 70s when Sahato was in power, he wanted to kind of javanize other parts of Indonesia, he forced a lot of the Punan out of the forest. Right. So they were physically forced out and then pushed into these towns and so forth. So, so yeah, so that's probably a good example of how times have changed like that. So the governor now, he's not going to go in there and force them out. Right. In his opinion, he'd prefer that they came in and were educated. But, you know, but to me, they seem very happy. Have you always and, been and greeted with a nice welcome or was there any, ever dan- any, any dangerous times you know, where people within the indigenous community didn't like it that a Westerner was coming in? And... Never. I mean, I've always been very respectful, obviously, of the people. And I think that they, you know, they say that the dying people see with the, the mind and not with the eyes. You know? So I think that they feel things and perhaps energy and things like that. So I, I think from early on they, they could see I was very genuine about my intentions. Mm. But, which is interesting because, of course, there's been, you know, a history, really, of, of being exploited yeah. in all kinds of different ways. So, yes. and, and, and I think the other thing is, you know, myself being independent is quite different. I'm not, you know, linked with an NGO yeah, or a government or right. anything like that. A lot of NGOs, and, you know, some do some good work, but a lot of them have come in there in the past. And, and you know, anthropologists and wanting to do stories and things like that. But it's like, well, what's, you know... How does that benefit the local community? And then mm, they mm. say they're going to come back and they don't. But the people are so, and that's probably why I've just really fallen in love with the, the people there, and particularly in the villages, because they're so genuine and they're so welcoming and so friendly. And, and of course, keep going back and I've made lots of friends. And, sure. And it's sure. Such, a, such a beautiful experience. Yeah, I mean, as we go a little bit deeper with it now into, into, your, into the impact of what you're doing and the responsibility that you have doing it. Um, you do, you're doing something that not many people have ever done before and you're going into these communities and, uh, and we know that sometimes you can affect a system and maybe not be good for the system, maybe great for the system. It's hard to know when to do the right thing and what the right thing is to do, right? Mm. Which is a, a big problem with NGOs sometimes. They come in, think they're doing good, but actually it's, it's destructive right. to, to the preservation of, of uh, these cultures. For you, how do you balance that responsibility in, in, in your life and how does it weigh on you, if it, if it weighs on you? Well, it does. I mean, it's a very good question because I realised that, like, like that, that example of going into the Punan, when I came out of there, I thought, wow, what have I just done here? You know, I've gone into this community. And, um, you know, and just, just my, my, my presence perhaps coming in there could potentially change things. Mm. Um, so, um, but, but I, I think I, I've always taken the view that, you know, everything has to be from the grassroots and it has to start from the communities and it has to start from obviously, from the way that they're thinking and what's important to them. So right, right from, the, you know, from the early days, I suppose, when I started to go up to these communities, started to meet the people. Yeah, I was taking photographs and so forth, but I was more learning from them. Mm-hmm. That was my... And, and then 
working with the, the local people. That's really important as well. Do you think there's any danger of inspiring the young ones in the community when they see an outside influence like that? They say, oh, maybe I'll go on and leave this behind and go to... Is there any danger there in inspiring people to leave the the community well that's that's a whole other thing so so that's what happens of course a lot of the young dykes people they leave you know they go through high school and then if the parents got the money and they have an opportunity to go to university in job jakarta or somewhere like that and a lot of them you know stay in the city and they don't go back to the community and then they start to disassociate themselves from their culture because they're not speaking the language anymore you know living in a city it's a very different life than back in the village so they start to lose connection with their rituals and the and their their grandparents and the stories and all the, all of those sorts of things. Yeah. So that's another kind of program we're trying to work on, supporting and, and getting those um, people an opportunity to come back yep. and use those skills because they're very much needed back in the communities to protect them against the exploitation of the land and things like that. So, so I suppose for me, you know, once I started to learn and, and understand from the local perspective, then I was like, you know, ideas about how I could help, whether that's help, through... Yeah. And know. mainly that's focused on preservation, really, not interference, but preservation of, of, of these cultures and these ideas. Are, and it's clearly something that's really important to you. Why? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a question a lot of people ask me. Yeah. It is, because it's very unusual. I mean, here's this Boulay guy who keeps going back up to the, up to the communities and, and, and devoting so much of my time and my money and everything else into supporting these people. Um, yeah, and... You know, perhaps the only way I could answer that is that I just, it's like, for me, it's like a calling, you know, it's like, it's like somehow or another I was guided to, to do that. Mm. And, um, and so, and I've never had any fear or anything like that. So whenever I go up to these communities and so forth, and then I seem to things, things at times it gets quite challenging. You think, well, how are we going to get the money to do this, this, whatever it is that we're wanting to do, but all out. these amazing little miracles <laughs> seem to happen. You yeah. Know? I mean, um, for me, and, and living locally with Balinese and Thais, uh, I think there's certain things even about this tradition on, in a modern society, a modern Eastern society, there is things that are inherently deeply useful, views and perspectives on the world that we may have lost touch with and contact with that are inherently useful. And so I think what you do in the preservation of these uh, Indone indigenous cultures um, it's kind of preserving a mindset as well. I mean, uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, yeah, one thing I've learned is, I, and why I guess I have such tremendous admiration for these cultures is, is the wisdom and the knowledge and their connection with nature and, and all the lessons that they have to, to, to teach us. Mm. Um, and I've started to work for the last few years, you know, with the Green School, an environmental school, and start to introduce indigenous wisdom into that, into that place, you know, because I... I think it's so important and I, and I think if we're going to achieve something in, in terms of, of, of balance and preservation in the future, well, we simply have to work with the Indigenous people. I'm totally convinced that that's the key is Indigenous and non-Indigenous working together because they have this knowledge, they have this, you know, just the way that they look at nature and the fact that they're very much part of it mm. and we're sort of so disassociated from it. From it yeah. Totally. So, so for me coming in, you know, from Western culture and my upbringing and everything else and just observing and reading and, and listening and learning, you know, not just the Dayak cultures, but into many other indigenous you know, communities up in India and Myanmar and Vietnam, and places like that. And yeah, basically the same sort of thing comes through. And I, I'm very, you know, not just respectful of that, but, but I, I see that that is the, the, you know, the kind of solution and working together is so important. And, and that's the other thing too, I guess, you know, I, I'm guided a lot by the wisdom of mm. those people, whether it's young people or the 
or the elders. Mm, mm. Um, when, when I look through your photography and, and I look at similar work, um, for me, it's like my experience of it is like you're looking back in time. I don't see it as I'm looking at I, I, It's almost like we're looking at ourselves back in time. I think there's a time, a journey there to be had, you know. And, uh, and that, it's, it's like a profound experience. It's like well, this is where we come from. Because I feel many people in the modern day society are very lost, you know, and disconnected with these kind of things like nature and, and, um, and these, these ideas and these rituals and things. And it's almost like you can see back into who you really are. That's right. Well, the past is our future, you know, that's kind of a yes. quote that I heard one day, which I think makes a lot of sense. And yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, look, just in reality, isn't it? You know, people live in cities, for example, when I speak to people in Jakarta, is a good example about Dayak people. They really have no, no, no idea. And they, you know, they ask me stupid questions like, oh, are they still, you know, do they still eat people? And, you know, so, so they're so misunderstood. And that, that's another thing, you know, so a lot of young Dayak people have a bit of an identity crisis because they get that. Right. As well, you know, people ask them those sorts of questions, and it's you know, it's very disrespectful. And, mm. and it's but from, from the modern day society, you know, like uh, my field's in psychology as well. When you go off what you watch in the movies, and what has been portrayed in the movies of indigenous and tribal cultures is exactly that. Right. We have ourselves to blame for those kind of uh, ideas and that, that kind of ignorance. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. So I suppose that's another area that, that that's yeah that has to be addressed, and I think that we're doing that through things like film festivals and things like that, but. Um, but, but it's very important because I think, but it's difficult. I mean, how do you get people in a city who have no connection with nature, would, would never go into the forest, they'd be too scared to or whatever, mm. in reality? Well, obviously, the only way to do that is through media and trying to get them to get a greater understanding. And, and I, I don't know, you know, I, I, you know perhaps the, the, those people, um, you know, are not really part of the solution anyway. So, but yeah, but anyway, it's important. I think that, that indigenous people, and especially Dyak people, Presenting correctly. More, more understood. Of yeah, presenting correctly. Yeah, uh, with, with your photography, with your documentary, exactly what we're doing now as, as well. I'm sure people, some people will be listening and be interested in this and want to look further into it because it's so under-publicized. Before I knew about you, I didn't know any of this. Right. So it was only through knowing you that I knew this was going on. You know? well, well, that's interesting, so, isn't it? And, and that perhaps people watching this interview at some point may, may be this in the same boat, you know. But, and look, I mean, an example of that and why I think this is so important and, and we have to, you know, raise this voice much louder and, and as quickly as we can because I, I, was, I went to the States in October. I, I took a young Dayak activist with me. Together we went to, to this um, conference called Bioneers in San Francisco and, and it was a very powerful experience. There's some amazing people there, mm. some change makers and, and very motivating to see what's going on, you know, for, uh, particularly in South America and in the States. But when I was talking, you know, these are very well-educated people there. There was mm. 3,000 odd people there, probably more. You know, very well-educated, very well-traveled, you know, mostly Americans that were there. And yet, when I would talk about Borneo, they'd give me this puzzled look. They had no idea. They'd never heard of Borneo. <laughs> no. I'm like, you know, my God, like climate change and the biodiversity of that island is so important for the whole planet, you know? Yeah. People know nothing about that island. They know, you know, you ask people about the Amazon, they would all know about the Amazon. Yeah. Well, this is just as significant as the Amazon and has been, you know, continued to being destroyed. So it's so important for the planet and, and planetary awareness. So, so that's a, a challenge. How and what's do we get happening? That to what's that happening there market? now in Borneo? Like you were saying, it's uh, it's another lung of the planet, right? As well as the Amazon. So what are you seeing there over the past few years? Have you seen any? Uh, deterioration, or are things improving? Are things going faster? Or are they slowing down? Or no, I'd certainly say, in terms of the you know the amount of forests that are being destroyed, it's it's probably well the stats anyways 
you know, demonstrate that it's improved in the last, you know, year or two. Um, but course, is that because of any government policy, or? Yeah, I think I, I certainly think Jacoby is um, has brought in some policies um, and is definitely more friendly towards that. Let's say, however, in terms of impact, the impact hasn't been hasn't been that significant. Because mm. in other words, he's brought in like a peatland restoration policy, restoring all this peatland from the, the terrible fires they had there three years ago in central Kalimantan. So it's a great, it's a great idea. It's, it's a good policy, I guess, but it's only about five percent effective to what the goal is in terms of amount of hectares that they're restoring. So, mm. and, and 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 the indigenous people have very, been very disappointed with Chikoi because there's an indigenous rights bill that's um, that's just stalling in Parliament. There's an indigenous land, well, a land rights bill that was approved a few years ago that Chikoi said that he would give a lot of the land back to the indigenous people. That's been a bit of a failure. So. So I think you know I think the indigenous community are now are now hopeful that another term that he'll stick by his word. Mm. So I think there's been a lot. I think in terms of attitude, definitely the attitude has changed. And I think that's a very positive thing. Uh, but there's still many challenges, and of course, the biggest challenge is, is, is the palm oil development. So right. And I've been you know through areas I've driven for four hours and seen nothing but palm oil on either side of the road. So there's these massive plantations which are causing tremendous. Destruction and, and, and um, of biodiversity as well, huh? not just uh, it's a biodiversity problem as well, right? Well, the totally. orangutans I mean, and well, there's that, but also you know when they go in and destroy original forest, I mean it's just absolutely nonsensical because the if the original forest is preserved, it's, it's sustainable and it can provide medicines and it can provide obviously the food for the indigenous people. But there's so much economic benefit that can be derived from from the forest and the long term. Book. Well, that's the thing. So, of course, palm oil is a huge money maker for these corporations and so forth. So, so they just want to convert all they can across to, to palm oil. You know, obviously, on, you know, based on profitability. But, and that's why the local, most of the indigenous people, you know, are very much opposed to, to palm oil development. They want to, you know, keep their forests and, and still live sustainably and so forth. So, so that that that's a big challenge. You know, of course, the European Community putting a lot of pressure on, well, not pressure, but they, you know, they're looking to ban. Um, palm oil from use in biofuels. But we're one of the biggest consumers, though, right? Well, that's right. Yeah, well, the biggest consumers are Which is, uh, it's India, a, it's a, China, and, and the European It's a repeating irony in our situation as human beings is that, you know, we hate plastics and we hate the use of, of fossil fuels, but to do all this, what that's do we right. do? We, we are complicit uh, in, in this kind of mass behavior. And, and I think one thing, I think people are ready for change. I think that when you don't, you just have to look at Facebook for five minutes and see that plastics is a hot issue, right? The, the collective consciousness is ready for movement on this, but it's how do you do it? How do you curb the use and slow down the use? And, how, and how, what, what can we do that would be effective in, in solving these problems, you know? It's such mm. a big problem for the individual to look at. Yeah, well, exactly. And I think that, that is the problem in itself because when you look at it in a more holistic point of view, it's, and I notice there's a lot of people, oh, it's just all too hard. It's just <laughs> how do we, you know, like you say, a million plastic bottles a day are thrown away in mm. Bali and all stuff. So it's kind of like, what can I do about it? It's ridiculous. It's out of control. I can't do. But then people are so, you know, disempowered when they have that attitude. Mm. My, my way of looking at it is that, you know, whatever you can do as an individual, as small or whatever that contribution may be, is so important. Mm. And, and for me, one of the most important things is, is education, obviously. And um, but 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 supporting the the, the communities, um, and that's why I say I think indigenous non-indigenous working together because we have certain skills that we can bring to the table, and the indigenous people have, 
have that wisdom and, and, and many other things as well. So, so that combination can be very impactful. Mm. So probably a good example is this Indigenous Film Festival. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, yeah. And, you know, what, what's so important behind that? And it's not just, you know, an opportunity to show films to a, you know, mostly Western audience or whatever. It's, it's great and it's good for people to become more aware of themselves and everything, but it's really to support the filmmakers. Mm. So what's going to happen now out of that, and, and we're starting to roll out, is these education uh, kits into the community. So we want to arm indi young Indigenous people to go out into the villages and show these um, Indigenous films. Right. And have like an education they're, kit. They're, you're showing one those. culture, a different culture, right? Is that what you're trying to do? So these, these, are, these are documentaries that are focused on solutions, um, problems, but also other communities around the world, not just in Indonesia, that have had the similar kind of issues but have been able to overcome them and have been, um, yeah, been able to come up with a solution. So, so those are very important because what I find when I go out to the communities, they, they feel quite like they don't know what to do. Mm. They kind of recognise the problems, they see what's happening, and, they, and they're very manipulated. It's another thing. But So they're kind of like... And, and the thing is, these are very proud people, so they're not sort of saying, oh, my God, we need your, your help. You know, right. they're, very, they're not asking for help. Yeah. No, they're, they're, they're trying, but they're kind of like, we don't really, you know, we... we not sure what the answers are, mm. um, and and I think so. I think education is so important. And, and you're taking the answer from one indigenous culture and presenting that to another. Is that is that right? Well, not just one. But well, many, others, many, many. Could, could you give an example of, of that? Um, well, I think I mean just the, these a lot of these documentaries that they could be in issues in Panama or they could be in, um, in South America somewhere in in, uh, in Ecuador. I mean. Okay, maybe give you a good example. So when we went to Bioneers, um, we we um, were able to to meet and see this group called Amazon Frontlines, right. or the Cibo Alliance. Now they're, they're in uh, Ecuador, mm. and they are they are so well organised and so united in what they're doing to preserve their lands, and they just won a court victory two weeks ago to save five hundred thousand, I think it was hectares of their land. And what we saw with that with that group is they've got the the Dayak, some of the Dayak tribes united. They've got um, very effective uh, communication. They've got very effective uh, indigenous youth training programs, filmmaking programs. Mm. They've got really good funding. So they're very strong. They're very strong, and they're very, very hard for these companies to come in and manipulate and take advantage of. Yep. So they're very effective what they've been able to do. So we look at an organisation like that, and we think, well, how can we apply that in Kalimantan? How can we, can we build a movement that can take, you know, I guess the power, if that's not the right word, but... Take, take, take that, that, that back so the people have control mm. and not the, the, the outsiders or whoever it is that's coming in and destroying the land. So, mm. so I think Amazon frontline. So I think, okay, so how can we communicate that into the communities? Well, we can do that through film. Mm. We can do that through stories. So, yeah, so that's the plan. So, to, to, and yeah, it's so you've seen the model work there and you're applying it over here. Yeah, right? yeah. I, not, not, maybe not perfectly 100%. But, no, no, but, 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 but the, and, the and strength of it. That's right, and that's all with Shinta. You know, we went together to that, and we talked a lot about that. And so we had plans together to start introducing these things, and that's just one project, actually. Yeah, one of but, many that you've got going on, right? Well, that's the thing. And her organisation called Ranu Wellam, they they have this this program called Youth Act. We'll put this in the link as well Great. in the description. Great, wonderful. Yeah, they're, they're doing incredible work, you know. And I think what Shinta just started it's that similar, organisation on a similar similar lines three or? years ago. That's right. So that so Youth Act is all about educating the youth, the Dayak youth across Kalimantan, but and she's based in central Kalimantan, so that's where the focus is at the moment, because the other problem you've got is that the young, um, 
indigenous youth don't really know anything about deforestation or what causes the, the fires or what causes climate change because they mm. don't get that through the school system. Mm. Um, even in university don't really teach that. So we've got to get to those people because and, and, and empower them through, through education and support. So, so Youth Act is, is been you know building and, and, and growing now for the last couple of years. So, so Shinta organised an Indigenous Film Festival in Kalimantan last August. So we had that. Well, she, she organised that for five days. And I went up to that, and then after that, we took the films into four or five different communities in West Kalimantan. So we showed some of the films. We had gatherings of thirty to sixty Indigenous youth come along and watch the films, and then we'd have discussion afterwards. What was the feedback? What like? can you do? What yeah. can you get involved? Well, the feedback was very positive. So, so from that in August last year, then we identified some potential, well, kind of, they're making documentaries now, but potential, um, you know, filmmakers for the future, and we brought some of them to Bali last week. Right. So what we're looking at with Youth Act is not the, necessarily the skills and the, the abilities and things like that. It's all about the heart and the passion about preserving their culture. That's mm. what we're looking for. Once we identify those individuals, then we'll support them and we'll bring them to Bali, train them up. We're talking about a mentorship program of mentoring with experienced filmmakers, non-Indigenous. That's starting to happen there as well. Mm. So I think that that's definitely one, one solution, you know, empower the youth, educate, and because I believe, and I say this to Shinta all the time, one day you will be the leaders. Mm. Not the way it is now, because the current leadership is just not delivering, right? It's, no. uh, it's, it's not, in most cases, it's not, not, not a sustainable... Is there any way to uh, work in partnership with corporations themselves? I mean, uh, uh, I work for a corporation and we're very heavily involved in, in different tactics and, and preservation of uh, particularly elephants and um, we, we just ban plastic straws throughout the whole company. It's a lot of hotels. Right. And so, so having a corporation and, and forward-thinking people in, in corporation Surely that could help your cause and help expedite it because they're such large uh, entities. Yeah, well, uh, now that's another thing. I just had this conversation with Shinda the other day. I mean, who we kind of, that's, you know, we've, we've remained very independent and that has advantages and disadvantages, right? The advantage is that we can be totally autonomous and make the decisions and do what we want to do. Mm -hmm. no, no influences from the outside. The difficult part is the, is the financing because we have to try and finance it ourselves and that takes a lot of time, a lot of energy, it's stressful at times and, and so forth and it can, can take our focus away. So if we can partner up, whether it's a corporation or another entity that is willing to support us but not get involved in what, involved, not, not, not perhaps interfere in the with political what, what, side what we're things. doing. Yeah. That's right, because I think that there's a danger that that can happen and of course there's many cases where that's happened. So. So whether it's corporations or, or whether it's like, like, for example, there's an organisation called If Not Us Then Who, and they, one of their board members... Great name. Yeah, well, they try, <laughs> and they make films about Indigenous communities and support Indigenous filmmakers and lots of things, and they're very much involved at the COP meetings and Paris climate change and all that stuff. So they work at a very high level. They get some funding from, um, from the Ford Foundation, mm. people like that. So, so teaming up, but they don't run Indigenous film festivals, so... Teaming up with somebody like that, who have very similar passion and ideas, would make a lot of sense. Helps the, so helps the cause, right? You, you seem, as you talk about this, you seem massively optimistic. You know, you don't talk about it as if, well, we may not be able to, 
to get there or because that's how I talk about it like I, I talk about it half 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 pessimist half optimist but you seem very very optimistic about the future of, of what you're doing is, is, is that right it's, yeah I, I really believe that mm. I do there seems to be no doubt with you that there's progress that can can be made right yeah absolutely because I guess I, I get out of the communities and I'll be going up there now for seven years and so I've I've seen a lot of progress in different areas you know through some of our like education programs I see talk a little bit now about Sekola Arat. So Sekola Arat, this is a great example, right? So this young woman, her name's Wisa, and she started this program in her village about three or four years ago. Now, I picked up the Jakarta Post one day, and I read this article about her. I'd never heard of this before. Mm. I read this article, and I went, oh, my God, this is amazing. That's exactly what I've been thinking about. And and what I think, from my perspective, is, is what the solution would be, obviously. You know, not just educating the youth, but bringing the young indigenous people together. In this case, it's it's in 36 communities around Indonesia now, but there's 18 in West Kalimantan. So Wisa started this, and she brings the elders and the the, the younger kids together mm. in a kind of informal uh, training, uh, sorry, teaching environment once a week. Yeah, yeah. So they have these classes either in the front porch of, of somebody's house, or they go into the forest and they do them. And they connect with the elders and they hear the stories and then they make, they do dance, they do music, they, they write their own songs mm. about how proud they are to be Dayak and, and they learn the rituals because a lot of the rituals have kind of gone away so that's all coming back. Yep. So Sekola Arat is a really fantastic program. And that's just started by Wisa, a, a very smart woman with tremendous courage and passion. Does she have a website or any, anywhere you can well, find and support? No, not at the moment. Well, maybe through you then. Well, that's what, um, that's what we're doing at the moment. So we're right. starting to get all that organised. But, but anyway, but Wisa's gone out and she's, yeah, she's started from, from, from that. All the people that work in that program are all volunteers. No one gets paid. Right. And not only has she done that, but she's also started to bring up 16, 17-year-olds that have that potential and have that passion and have that heart for their culture also as organisers of the program. Mm. So that started two or three years ago in one village. Now it's in 18 villages. Mm. And the plan is to now, and well, it's already happening, to go to more and more villages. And she started to work with the Minister of Education. She started to build a relationship with the, the, the part of Minister of Education, which, which is supposed to provide cultural education in this country. Mm. So she's working with them all completely independently. Mm. And she's had some help from one organisation called Aman, as well, they've obviously you know come on board and helped with some training and things like that. But but anyway, but I look at Wisa and, and she's such an inspiration for me. And I think, well, why can't we have a thousand? <laughs> There's nothing to stop us having yeah. two thousand, ten thousand. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I always say that she's part of an educational revolution in this country that nobody knows, or, or ninety nine percent of people know nothing about. You know, so in, in that's all, why I'm all this that you're doing now. Uh, have you had time to read Sapiens, by the way? Is it Noah Yuval's My book? wife read that. Oh, really? Yeah. Recently, so I haven't. You but know. she was telling me about it. Yeah. Yeah, because I think what's interesting me for to me from a anth kind of anthropology his history, you know, like uh, anthropological history, is we know that previous versions of ourselves died out in order for the current versions of ourselves to to be here. Right? Mm -hmm. It seems to be a facet albeit uh, uh, not so nice one, uh, that everything that is not driving forward dies out to make space for the future, right? Um, now, I'm not saying I have no view on that, but I just want to know what you think about that. It seems to be a natural process of evolution that that exists. Well, that's true. But I also think, you know, I, I read a lot of, of, of the prophecies of indigenous leaders, um, spokespeople, perhaps shaman or, or, or spiritual leaders of the past, 
and there's one underlying, I guess, message that comes out, whether it's in South America, whether it's in Lakota country or wherever, is that there'll be this time. And they, they, they were talking about this four or five hundred years ago. Mm. You know, a lot of this is documented. A time when Indigenous and non-Indigenous would come together and they would find a way to, you know, protect, protect, maybe it's not the right word, but I don't know, find solutions and prevent that sixth extinction. Yeah, well, yeah, the about. irony is that if, if, if they did die out for another version of us, we would die out, right? Because well, that, right well, now well, we're not right. balanced and we're not, we're not in any uh, real harmony with our ecosystem, right? Well, totally. And, 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 you know, and, that, and that's what's destroying the planet. And, our, our, you know, like you were saying, our attitude and our... I mean, you know, and, and just our lifestyle and all those sorts of things. But, but I believe it's, it's all about the attitude because if you look at the way the Indigenous people look at their the respect for the earth and all those sorts of things, and as you see these days with technology and everything else, there's always alternatives. Mm. There's so many different ways we can do things if we build it around sustainability that's yes. been proven time and time and time again it's just that the political will's not there or the the ones with the vested interests are not interested because no but i think they're gonna, I, I feel they're going to be forced to be interested by enough people like you uh, and enough activists that i'm aware of out there you know i'm, I'm not an activist really but I, I like to put a platform for activism i think they are going to be persuaded but i also think that um, it's a necessary process of our evolution to develop this technology because in the end, the technology that we've has come at the cost of these forests and things, where we've got to, is going to be the solution, I mm. think. And that's what I feel about it. Like, we need that technology. It's not like we should say, oh, that's the corporate world, that's the technological world, and that's different from us. It's about integrating, which is what you're kind of, you're talking about, right, with in Indonesian, indigenous uh, cultures and the modern society. It's integration, not separation. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's so many different ways technology can be used in, in positive ways. And certainly with, the, with bringing indigenous wisdom and, and, and learning and understanding, you know, just with things like apps and putting stories on apps and all kinds of things. We've got a lot of plans to do things like that and through film and yes. various other ways. But that's right. And, and so I, I just think, you know, like when you look at change and you look at movements of positive change and history and all that sort of stuff, it all comes from the ground up. And it just comes, it comes down to, I think, enough people that care. Well, eventually There's crawling so out the mud, do. you know, it's, that's this thing with revolution in, in our history, right? Hopefully we get to do it in time. Well, well, that's the thing. I mean, and I think, you know, Jane Goodall said that the, the biggest threat, perhaps, is, is apathy. Is apathy, you know? If people are apathetic and they can't think they can do anything about it, well, that's, that's, that's a big part of the problem. But if mm. enough people care, enough people get involved and, and just do their part, then... Mm. You know, I mean, it sounds obvious, and it's so hard to do, it seems. And I get disappointed sometimes, I must say. Like, the film festival, well, why wasn't that totally sold out, you know? It wasn't, you know? There was, there was quite a few spare seats in that theatre. Well, that's just... To me, that's just unacceptable. I mean, mm. there should be... Mm. Those, those seats should be full, and people should be learning and, and hearing these stories and meeting the filmmakers and seeing their passion and their movement grow and all of those things. It right? seems to me that in, in modern-day society, we are... We're in a flow of information and a flow of um, Instagram and Facebook and social media and, and these things. I, th I feel like a lot of people are disconnected with themselves, you know, and me being one of them for many years, you know, I'm not pointing the finger. I was dis very disconnected with myself, uh, but, but, but successful on the outside, mm. you know, but disconnected. And I feel that that disconnection leads to this mass, um, this mass, uh, 
non, not being able to live a balanced life, not being able to live a harmonious life on the individual level is, is represented also in the collective level. And I right. think that's why we cut the trees down. Cutting right. a tree down is like a metaphor for me smoking. I let the smoke into my lungs on a personal level. I don't care about the tree, you know. Uh, but as we fix those personal um, issues on the personal level, if you can reconnect with self, whether you do it through psychotherapy, whether you do it through spiritual awakening, mm -hmm. whether you do it through traveling, or nature itself is a powerful psychedelic in, mm -hmm. um, in, in uh, doing this. Yeah. I think once we reestablish that internal connection, that we may see more uh, activism on a, on a high level. I mean, how does that relate to what you see in, in the, as, as you meet these individuals within the indigenous culture? Are they balanced harmoniously as individuals as well? Yes. That's a big question. <laughs> well, I think many are. And, and, and as I say, I, I think that's interesting because what I've discovered is the more you go back into the traditional, the more the people live closer to, to nature and to the forest, the more pure they are. Um, and I certainly, you know, sense that and experience that when I, when I go to those places. And I think as they perhaps some move into the cities or they start to become disconnected with that, with the, the true essence of who they are as Dayak people, then that starts to, it's like Bali, same sort of thing, like all these interferences started to come into play. But, mm. but of course we can't live, you know, like we did hundreds of years ago, that's not the reality. So how do we take that, that purity of spirit and, 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 and that, um, that connection, and especially with the children, and how do we kind of bring that more into our, into the way we live today you know this is something we've been exploring a lot with the green school through education through their programs and things like that and that's so, a, that's a big challenge but but i think but it's interesting isn't it because how do we define this is the thing how do we define success mm. how do we define being rich mm. well to me when i go up to those communities they're rich they're the richest people i've ever yeah. met in my life yeah like alan watts would often often say how do you define wealth you know they're very wealthy Okay. Uh, just no, no money. <laughs> exactly. So much of the Balinese, but there's 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 their strong connection with with their spirituality and with their religion and with their nature and everything. And so, so I think that's that's definitely you know something that I think that's that's very important and people can explore more and, and perhaps learn from it. And, and look, I just had the most incredible during the film festival. I had an Aboriginal elder from Arnhem Land staying with us for ten days, Millie Wonga. And just to be in her presence and to, to tap into her knowledge and her wisdom is extraordinary. And that's exactly what she says. She said that, you know, the answers are, are the balance between kind of activism and doing what you can as an individual mm. to improve the lives of others and, and spirituality. They must be balanced. So that's I, I feel that one of the necessity for the human race going forward is to branch out in the cosmos, you know, into interplanetary travel is a, is a big, it's a very important thing because at any point you could be hit by an asteroid here, at any point the, the sun could have a flare. We, mm. we, we live in this mortal danger all the time, right? Sure. And life has evolved to where we are right now and where we can build the tools to actually make this a possibility with what Elon Musk is doing, you know? Right. I feel like there's a drive there as well, as, as well as we take care of, of well, as well as you take care of, of, of the old. There's a drive towards the new and a necessity towards that too. Mm. Something even where we may have to die off for, you know, mm. some, some consciousness that uh, is out of the body. Well, they're trying. But I guess that's, that's the great unknown, right? That's what yeah. the Native Americans would call the great mystery, you know? Mm. We, we just don't know that. Um, but I think, yeah, I think as, as an individual, and that, that's the thing. So why do people get involved in 
whatever they're doing to try and protect the planet or make things better for other people. And that's very much a personal thing, isn't it? It's your mm. own journey, really. And that's being in touch, I guess, with your spirituality and, and your own connection with self and, and with others. And I, and I guess for me, you know, I was in the corporate world for 20 years looking after my kids and giving them a good education. I was very focused in that area. And since I've moved to Bali, well, that's just like, Oh, I say li living the dream, but mm. but my passion, my my, my um, you know my connections, my, my strong beliefs, it's kind of a, it's like kind of putting all that together, mm. and then working with these incredible people that I admire so much that they're, they're my inspiration. So you know, yeah, that, that's what it's all there's, about. For there's me. been a bit of a running question on the podcast that uh, has been established, and I ask everybody uh, it, and uh, it's quite a big question. <laughs> it's what is your concept of God? And obviously there's different answers for, for this, um, depending on what you've read and, uh, and, and how long you've really thought about it. Uh, for me, it's not a deity in the sky, for instance. It's more of a process. But for you, what would be your concept of God? You talk about your spirituality. Does that involve a God or is there no concept of God? Well, I suppose I, I very much believe in what the Native Americans were, what, what, you know, were talking about back before the colonists came across and everything else and that there's a, a supreme being there's a spirit world it's and of course living in Bali you know here you got two you know in the Scala and Sakala there's the two worlds here there's the mm. physical world and there's the spiritual world so so for me personally that that's I, I'm not a religious person I mean I went to a, grew up at a, went to a Catholic conservative Catholic boarding school for five years so yeah and, and the minute I left that school I never went to church again so so that didn't do it for me. I, I couldn't. I just found a very a lot of contradictions and things like that. So, but on this kind of journey, and, and yeah, and, and, and especially spending time with the indigenous people, I think that you know it's, it's a question of balance. In uh, um, your time with the indigenous people in South America, and I haven't been. Oh, South sorry, North, North America. Yes. Yeah. Um, was there any entheogenic use there as well, and in, in their rituals? Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, they still have their their ceremonies. They still have the sweat lodge. They still do, they, they do the sun dance now, which of course was banned for so, so many years. Um, so what, what, is, what is the sun dance? Well, the sun dance is yeah. basically, if it's done traditionally, the, the, the men, it's, it's, uh, it's done amongst, I guess, the men, the warriors, and they, they put, um, they tie um, like these kind of barbs to their skin and, and they put a pole up and they go into a trance and they dance around this right. hole and it basically rips their skin out eventually. It's a very painful experience. Mm. But they go into a trance and they're connecting with the other world and it's a very important part of, of, of you know, of, of a man become, becoming a man. You mm. know, it's one of those, mm. those rituals of, of going to manhood. And they, and they still do, you know, vision quests and they go to the spiritual lands and they still do a lot of that. So because through my reading, one clear differentiator, differentiator between indigenous or tribal cultures and modern day culture is uh, the lack of ritual and, and these kind of ceremonies. Uh, this, this, that is a very clear difference. We, we don't do that when a, a guy t turns 16 or 18 or is transitions from boyhood to manhood in the Western world. And uh, I feel that whether it's entheogenic or, or whatever means it's done by, I know in South America in particular it's entheogenic. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's, they use masculine in North America in, in many tribes. I feel that uh, it's an important marker of the difference between us and them. Mm. Well, I think Bali is a good example of that, isn't mm, it? You know, a ceremony just all day. It's, it's all, day. all around us, exactly. And it's all about giving, you know. It's about going in our villa, you know. The, one of our staff comes around and makes offerings every day at the temple and 
obviously back in their village and everywhere else. And so, so they live that. They live that that connection with the spirit world and, and, and making offerings and everything else. So I think that's the Balinese culture is a beautiful example of, of that. And do you believe and in that? Do you, do, do you believe in that? Or do you have a personal experience or, or enough that would, would now lead you to believe it's clearly an academic as well uh, to, to say, yes, there is something else going on? Yeah, I, I do believe it. Yes. But I haven't been that spiritually connected and haven't experienced a lot of that for right. myself. A couple of things, and I've certainly seen some things in Bali that I cannot explain. You know? <laughs> Scott just Scott said that in the last interview, actually, yeah. Right. But, <laughs> but actually, it was very interesting to ask that question, because with Millie, the Aboriginal elder, she did a healing on me, and this um, spirit, this face, appeared. And I've never had that experience before. Wow. And it was a very old Aboriginal man. This was in, materialized in, with, with the eyes closed? Or? Yeah, with the eyes closed. Wow. I wasn't meditating or asleep. I just had my eyes right. closed. And that materialized. Yeah. And yeah. that was a very interesting experience. But, but it was a beautiful feeling. It was a very comforting... No shocking... You, know. you were shocked or...? No. No. No, not at all. It was a really beautiful experience, actually. So, I, yeah, and, and I think that... I, I don't know... I, you know I, don't, I don't think you just go, I want to have more of those experiences. I think that's just, you know, um, something that, that happens to some people and, and not to others, you know. They yeah. decide, perhaps, to come in. But, but no... To me, anyway, it makes a lot of sense the way the Balinese philosophy on that. You know, we live in two Which worlds, is interesting so because you balance. seem like a very matter-of-fact person uh, through our limited conversation. You seem very matter-of-fact and very evidence-based, and you seem you come from a scientific uh, angle. Right. But yet you, you're very open-minded to that, that aspect of Balinese culture and, and, the, and with these indigenous uh, people. Well, well, totally. And, and, you know, especially spending a lot of time up in the indigenous communities. Mm. And like, as I mentioned before about, like, for example, Gawai happening next month in June. Well, that's one of these villages I'm going up to. That's 10 days of rituals every single day. And it's all about paying the respects to the ancestors and the spirit world. And that's what it's all about. So when I, and I've been to death ceremonies, um, that, again, at the death ceremonies, I didn't experience something myself personally, like see spirit or something like that. But, but you know, you've got all these people that are there and they're chanting in this, language that the Shah woman, there was a Shah woman in one of these um, experiences, chanting this, this language that nobody else understands and that's their responsibility to send the, the dead or, or the, the spirit to the next world and mm. things like that. So, so just in my, what I've witnessed. Is this something you know, that when, when you see this kind of thing and when you're in that location, you would ask a lot about or push about or is it just something you observe it may be a difference between me and you i would have to ask and say what's this what's that what's it uh, we are a photographer you look through the lens is it something you ask about and probe about or is it something you just observe both all right both so i'm very interested of course i'm very curious you know yes. to, to learn about what does that mean and what's that all about <laughs> and everything else and of course there's very little written down so sure yeah but actually at that ajame it's called in this um their ceremony I went to in this area called burrito and um Central Kalimantan, the, the Daik Manyan tribe lives there. And they're, they're, their culture is still very strong. And, um, and, and interestingly enough, it's the first time I've come across this, there was an anthropologist who went to that village about 30, 35 years ago. He was Dutch, like many of them are. And he, no, he was American, that's right, sorry, because many of them are Dutch and they're in Dutch, which I can't read. But anyway, he wrote this kind of little book all about the Ajama. He spent a year in that village right. and wrote a really good account of the whole thing. So I was able to read that. That was a real luxury for me because otherwise I could ask a lot of questions. Yeah, it was all there for you. And had translation because, you know, it's often in the local dialect language. So, yeah, so that, that's... Um, was there anything in that that stood out at the time? Was there anything you thought, oh, 
that's interesting or oh there was many many things many things you know they, they dig up the, the body well similar to Bali they dig up the bodies and they clean the bones and they take the bones to a special house and then they spend about a week in this particular area doing the chanting and so this is after somebody's dead I didn't know this about Bali by the way so they oh. they after somebody's dead they go back and dig up the, the bones yeah that's right yeah so oh. they bury them and in and, and, and typically here when they do a mass cremation it could be two years three years sometimes four years with a since the people have died. And, and, and that Ajame up in Kalimantan, that had been, um, yeah, there had been a few years when, since those people had died, but they believe that once they die and they bury them in the ground, their spirit hasn't, must be sent to the next world because of the right. reincarnation, and that's really important. If that's and not they, done, they, then the spirits will stay earthbound. They dig up the bones and clean mm. them, though. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and they put them into a temporary shelter, and then they have a particular day where they burn the, they burn the, the bones. Oh, wow. And the ashes are then taken down and put into the... Or some are put into the ocean and some are retained. This is a, another facet of uh, Eastern versus Western psychology, the way we deal with death. Um, in, in the West, we, we get our old people, put them in a home, you know, and just kind of forget about them, and that's, that's that. And death's a kind of a dirty thing. Don't talk about it, you know. Uh, right. It's almost we live as if we're never going to die, you know, in the West. And then coming, with it, coming over into the East, and my experience here is that... No, it's a lot acceptable. You, you, you're going to die, and there is death, and you can look at it, and it's not it's not put away in the in the corner. I mean, the relationships that you see in these indigenous tribes is is that the case? They they very uh, okay with death. Yeah, well, very much like the Balinese. You know, they, they, well, they, they I think typically indigenous cultures, you know, they say that uh, the Lakota say there's no such thing as death. There's just a changing of worlds, mm. and that's their philosophy. So. And, and you know so we're here in this physical world for a period of time and where we decide our, our bodies you know had enough or whatever but the spirit never dies you know the spirit then goes to another place and it seems that they really deeply believe that though you know if you talk to a, a catholic or a protestant or somebody that's quite holy and religious and pious uh, you may say you know so what do you think after you know what happened after death is well being in eternal bliss forever and let's not talk about it you know right. uh, it's this this i this idea of uh i'm religious and i follow the religion but i don't really believe that it's going to end in heaven and hell not really deep down right. whereas i feel that what you're talking about is a genuine just like yeah that's what happens oh absolutely yeah so so, so death the, the actual day of the or the process here of of the you know the rituals and all that sort of stuff I mean, obviously, there's a time of mourning as well, but but mostly it's a joyous occasion. It's happy because the <laughs> spirits party. are going to another another world, you know. Yeah. And and to continue on its its journey, you know, in the spirit world. So, um, and of course, I mean, in terms of philosophy, well, what a great philosophy to have. Because I totally agree with you. When I go to funerals back in Australia or New Zealand or whatever, I'm just like, and my mother died recently, and my father, and it's like, oh my God, we just don't do death very well at all basically no. you know we're so no. disconnected and you go to the morgue and you have an hour to see the body and it's all done oh my god that's just to me that's just and i feel like we're following a very learned behavior very uh, it's it's ingrained you know well that's what you're supposed to do and then a lot of people i feel that when the, they a lot of westerners and i've been through this experience myself is if you don't feel guilty 
the way you should, like the weeping widow kind of thing, because you don't feel guilty. If you, if you don't feel bad, I mean, you feel guilty. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't feel I'm not overly upset or I'm not overly that touched by it, then there can be a, a residual guilt in that in, in the West. Well, exactly. But I, I guess there's so much fear around death, isn't it, in the West? I mean, you know, there's so much, and, and it stops people from doing so many things. Mm. And people use that to their advantage as well. But I think that's, you know, a lot of people say to me, oh, isn't it dangerous going to Kalimantan or going up to the forest or... I never think like that. No. Never, for, for a moment. No, I just, just got to get out there and do it, you know. Mm. And uh, I never think about that. So, But, uh, yeah, a lot of people in the West, a lot, of, a lot of people say, oh, I was a bit afraid of coming to Bali, you know, because of the stuff they see on the media. Well, it's just it's I've, I've had experiences in life where it would lead me to believe that uh, in, in an idea similar to reincarnation, not coming back as the, the same personality, but I fear that it's all connected and we are all connected and mm. we, it's it's blatantly obvious uh, eventually when you look at it i think the, the shape of our skulls the way our nervous system works the way we learn you know the the, the the how we are from completely different countries but your lungs are breathing by the exact same mechanism mine are right. as with any other indigenous species it's like under it it's all one under it it's all coming from you call it the divine intelligence or whatever esoteric term you want to put on it but it it seems very rational rational and physics is showing us such that underneath, it's all just one thing, right? Oh, I think there's absolutely it, no doubt. And again, you go back through the, you know, what the indigenous people say about all that. It all just makes makes total sense. Everything. That's exactly what they're saying, is it? Totally. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and and um, yeah. And I think uh, you know, there's so many lessons in nature, isn't there? You know, when you just start to look at how nature works, and it's like we don't need anything else to teach us it's all there it's in all nature. there yeah. just go and sit by a river or go into the forest it's, it's a question really of time. surrendering as well isn't it like it's just you you don't have to think about growing your hair you don't have to think about breathing your lungs you know it's all gonna it's all a kind of automated process sit back and enjoy the the, the nature you know enjoy the the being of it but we're such complex creatures that we create these problems in our minds of and it's destructive as well. It's, 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 a, it's a, what you're seeing on a, on a macro level in, in Borneo and these places. Right. Now, I wanted to uh, get to a, another point just quickly about you take people to these places, right? You, you're selective, I know, on the people that you, you take. But yeah. you, you have a business or, or a setup that, that takes these people the right way, the eco-friendly way and the respectful way to these locations that you're talking about. Can you tell us a bit right. about that? Or? That's right. So I take photography tours or photography groups to take photographs, obviously, um, and also do cultural cultural tours. Right. And, and then there's a bit of a combination. So what tends to happen is people come on the cultural tours, but they're keen photographers as well, because obviously there's <laughs> things to photograph and yeah. so forth. So, so I do that, and I've been doing that different places around the world, um, and, and in Indonesia, Bali as well, of course. Um, yeah, so I think, um, and, and I suppose, depends on where I'm going. I mean, if I go up to, recently up to North Vietnam, I don't have a lot of connections in North Vietnam. So right. That's just, you know, going into the communities and meeting the, like recently, the Hmong people up in North Vietnam, and we go into their into their homes and photograph them and things like that, and, mm. and, and, um, and we have those experiences. How do they feel about it? Being photographed, are they okay? Well, well, or? well, yeah, they're they're fine, but it's really important. The local guide's really important that they have a relationship and a trust with that local village. Right. We would not go into these places without that. And, and I think like India is another another example. So I've been up into the tribal lands of Odisha in India, two or three times now. And uh, but I've seen some some terrible things there too. I've seen where 
where the the people get a kind of a, well they get exploited you know busloads of tourists come in and get out and they become like an object right and it's taking really photos and yeah and then the people are putting their hands out for money and, and then oh, it's just horrible it made me very sad to see that actually and that's just that's just poor planning that's just travel agents that are only interested in the money and, and exploiting those people and it's no different than whatever companies coming in or whatever doing that so so I think it's you know I said it's my responsibility to be very conscious of that and mm. Not certainly not to not not just not create that, but to be a leader in, te in terms of perhaps showing how um, sustainable tourism can happen. To do it respectfully respect and sustain the, sustainably. Yes, that's right. So I'll take like for example, I'll take a percentage of the money that I get from the tours, and I'll put that back into the education programs, to call right. art or, um, or or the filmmaking or uh, whatever. But it'll go back to the community. So everything I do always is like a circle. Mm. I'm always very conscious of how can I. You know keep that circle going so taking these people into this community and then how can i support so recently we went up to west kalimantan and i paid for a busload of kids to come from one of the villages to be able to dance at this 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 thing called night dungo yes a dyke celebration so yeah you yeah, don't so you don't strike me as the person that's going to go and buy a yacht <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and, and live out these no. days on the yacht you, you strike no. me as a person very involved and and frankly if i wanted to book a flight and just come and do this i couldn't anyway right i mean you'd never get to the villages and that's right exactly. which is probably a good thing is that you can't just go and, and book on a package uh package deal with any any agent it's just a unique thing right you know it's it's, an, it's, a, it's a careful balance right because like kalimantan's never been seen as a tourism island place it's always been seen by indonesians jakarta as a resource island right. gold coal yeah. timber you know now palm oil so it's always been looked at that way it's never been even considered as a place where tourists would want to go so but of course there's so many wonderful things to see mm. so it's kind of like and, I, and i've met many of the uh, tourism ministers the governors people like that you know, to sort of try and work with them, but I kind of realised they really don't have any idea what tourism is. No. And uh, they're not trained in that area. They don't have the experience or anything like that. So I kind of think, well, that's, that's a bit disappointing because it's just not, you know, I go to these amazing cultural events and I'm the only person there, the only ball <laughs> there or, or sitting with my group, you know. Yeah, yeah. Just recently I had that. So, so I kind of think, well, yes, it's really disappointing that it's like that because then I sit, and again, two weeks ago, sitting in the longhouse with these people in this village and they're like, we really want people to come. We want people to stay in our longhouse. Mm. We want to take them into the forest mm. because we can also earn some money that way and we can create some economic alternatives to sure. having to work down with the palm oil company. Yeah. We don't want to do that. You yeah. know? So I see in situations like that, really important to, to develop tourism. And, and then, you know, and again, giving back, training. It's not black and white, is local it? Local guys. There's, there's nuance, like a lot of nuance to it. That's so right. But, but, but there's many examples of places where sustainable tourism has worked and been... Of great benefit to the community so I look at some of those projects and some of those places and think yeah we, we need to build a model around that but it's very early days I mean mm. the concept of indigenous tourism here is pretty much unheard of mm. so we're right at the beginnings of all of that really so I still so see that in a positive way is here's an opportunity to get it right that not yeah, make yes, from the beginning right the same yeah. mistakes and I'm seeing some terrible things in Bali lately that just really oh, I don't be frustrated more than anything you know like you just, mean exploitation or well, just ruining beautiful places yeah you know the development you know, and well Tegelalang you know the beautiful terrace rice fields yeah, of Tegelalang yes. up here well I've been going up there for the last five six years and I was taking people to this one area kind of away from where the tourists go in the northern part of that area 
and then just gradually I start to see some changes. All of a sudden they build a car park in that area. Mm. I was there, and now they're putting these swings in, and they put these swings across the, the valley. The view, yeah. Ruins the view, like, mm. just turns it into a complete circus. Yeah, yeah. It really saddens me and makes me, because it's just poor planning, and someone's come along going, I want to do a swing and make some money, and the next someone else copies it. And then, yeah. It's I don't know how the licenses work, but somehow or another they work around that, and the next thing you've got this. And, and I've seen it before, and I see how beautiful it is, and I see how... how you know how that could be done so differently and tastefully <laughs> and, 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 and be a win-win and, and cover everybody's needs. Yeah, you're not saying don't do it. You're just saying do it in the right way, right? Well, that's right, because you got there's a demand. You've got people that want to do that sort yeah. of thing. But why in Tegelalang? I mean, you could put those things in other places. It seems to me like it's a series of small decisions. You know, we're all complicit and, and kind of in this. Like, I, I make the small decision to buy the bottle of water. I, uh, somebody comes along and says, I want to build this little business. I'm only taking that much land up. And I'll just cut down those many trees, and that's not a big deal, right? But right. Uh, each one on, a, on an individual level does that, and that's, this is where we end up in this situation. You know, it's like, how do you well, stop making those micro decisions? Well, that's the thing. And look at Instagram. What that does nowadays, you know, then people see some shot up in, in um, Lempawan Temple. I was up there recently, up in Karangasam, and pe- someone's been putting these photos, whatever. Many people of, of, of this, these these um, the heaven's temple door, yeah. kind of gates, yeah, oh, right. door thing. Yeah. Well, you know what happens now there. I was up there recently. I was there only a few months ago in the morning. There was no one there. Yeah. I was there with a couple of friends. I went up there about three weeks ago. And this piano, all of a sudden, it was in the morning. It was reasonably early. And there was like lots and lots of people getting out of buses and things. I'm like, what's happening here? <laughs> oh, it's, anyway, it's nice to come in to see the temple. It's a very sacred place. Like, you know what they were doing? They were queuing up. Yes, to go three and stand hours up to three under hours. those. You know about that, yeah. right? And then and they've closed off the temple, which is fair enough. I think... This is ter- they're not coming to see the temple. They're not this beautiful spiritual place. They're coming to do the selfie thing. Now that people want to do that, you know, and the Balinese you talk to, oh, it's okay, you know, and of course the temple gets lots of money because they have to pay a temple fee and blah, blah, blah. But I don't know, for me, I, I just, you know, you, look, you can't stay in the past. I'm not suggesting that. But but, but again, I mean, like, this just turns these, these beautiful sacred places into something that, that that's it's, not It's almost about. like we seek in, in modern people millennials, and the new one, I forgot what the term is for it, but we seek the image of the experience over the experience. We seek the, the memory of it in, in the now, instead of experiencing it That's in the right. now. You know? And this, this so psychology which we're at, it wasn't, it wasn't the same in, in earlier generations. But now we, we want the picture and we want to say, look, I've got it, and I hold it, and I objectify it, and look, that's me. Mm. Uh, it's almost like you find yourself in the picture rather than in the now in the experience. That's right. So it's kind of it's very self-indulgent, isn't it? Really. It's, and it's you're a photographer, so I mean, you you must think about this as, as well, right? I, I guess you're not taking photos of yourself. You're capturing moments. No, that's right. I mean, that's I think obviously totally different. I mean, we're going in and we're we're capturing the beauty or trying to capture the beauty of the culture and the people and the you know, and using things like natural light. And, you know, I guess as photographers, we're artists, right? So mm. just like traditional art, we're, we're trying to create or, or capture, which is probably the better word, capture what it is that we see. Mm. And the camera's just a tool. It's like a paintbrush. Yeah, you're, you're taking it in this natural environment instead of making this, queuing up for a few hours and then making this moment and then projecting that out into the world and saying, look, this is me. 
And now I'm not criticizing. I can very easily offend people on this on this topic. And I, I'm my wife does it. You know, my mum does it. I, it's it's something. I, when I talk about this, I'm talking about all of us sure, as the yeah. human race. You know, yeah, I, I want to know. I want to look deeper into what is the reason why we need to project ourselves outward to others and say this is me. Yeah, I, and maybe that's because we don't really know who we are because we disconnected with what you're talking about right. yeah well it's interesting too because when people come up into the villages and they have this and the key word is authenticity it's so authentic you know because you, yes. you're staying you're sleeping on the floor in the long house you're eating what the local people are eating in terms of food certainly not luxury but you know very com comfortable i think is the word but um but it's not about that you know it's you know and it's it's about sitting around with the, the Dayak people, drinking the rice wine, laughing, celebrating, playing some music. And the Dayak, for example, they love, you know, after they dance, you must join in with them. You know, that's all very important part of the whole, the whole experience. Mm, and so mm. they, they, love, they love that and they love to, to, to and they're curious, they love to learn about our cultures and where we come from and all those sorts of things. And so that's real authenticity, isn't it? It's, it's very real and it's, it's, and it's just beautiful. It's even, just if they, beautiful even if they do have a mobile phone or they, they have a watch, you know, like for well, some people that might ruin the illusion. Oh, this isn't authentic. Well, that, He's got a mobile phone. That's right. Some people <laughs> say that, but that's the way it is. It's today. It's reality. You can't. You yeah, know, can't be romantic. Pe people, I, I think we, including me, I, I imagine this scene where you know people are still using sticks and 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 they don't have mobile phones. They don't have these things. That is an unrealistic image of of, of what is what it's like. I assume. Well, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. It's just it's just the way people. Have, it's what they know. It's what they've lived with for thousands of years, and it's been passed on from the ancestors, and that's the way that they live. And. Mm. As I say, you know, they're very, I, I think perhaps some cultures are not so open to the outside world, but certainly the ones that I, that I go to certainly are. And, and I think it's, and I you know, always consider that, you know, what's the win-win here? How, mm. And this is, because, you know, people approach me sometimes and go, oh, I you know, read your story and you go up to Kalimantan, I want to go up and see the Dayaks and all that. So, but my first question is always, well, what are you going to do to help the communities? Right, right. Because that's that's the most important thing if you come from that way of thinking and that perspective it's totally different than oh i just want to have a, a my own personal experience yeah 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 that's all fine but but you know think about that mm. well, there's so much can be done it can be a small thing it can be something much greater but, mm. but i think if people travel with that with that concept and that that kind of belief and that and that uh, way of thinking yeah that, rather than really the photo important. is what can i do for the for the community what can i do in this in this situation right it's a nice it's a nice uh, way of looking at it yeah i never thought about that yeah i mean even simple things like just getting copies of the photographs because these people never see photographs like that right? mm. so that's what i do you know most of the time when i can i always get photos of the prints of the photos and then you know either the guide takes them back or when i go back i give them to the people or yeah whatever. it's a small thing but it's just a, it's just a, a an example of, of, of you know of giving something back you know mm. it doesn't mm. have to be massive and doing projects now you have this fantastic book indonesia's uh, hidden heritage which is just rich with images it's mainly images over over text right yeah and uh this oh. this one you did over 12 months with stephanie brooke i believe and you did That's six right. stories each right yeah, so, yeah, that's right. So Stephanie's my, my wife and a travel writer, very good travel writer. So we combine the, I guess, the skills that we have, photography and travel writing, and I write a, a bit as well. Yeah. And we travel around Indonesia. So 
So we've been writing stories for now Jakarta, magazine in Jakarta, for the last four years now. Mm. And that book is 10 of those stories. Wow. So that's another way people can, I guess, follow us, is now Jakarta magazine every month is a cultural story. All right. Uh, on Indonesia's hidden heritage. And book. this book is available on Amazon or? Uh, it's available through my website. Through your website, right? We'll put that, that, that yeah. link as well. And my wife's got a lot of those travel stories on her website as well, so we'll put that in there as well, so if people want to follow us and read mm. the stories, um, they can certainly do that. I can foresee we'll get quite a few comments on this one and, uh, and a few questions. And if there's enough, I think we'll do it again. It's, um, there's, a, there's a lot to cover. <laughs> I think you've just done too much for us to cover in, in this, this short space. So you only covered 10%. <laughs> so you've got Looking for Borneo and you've got a Bali Essence. These are all so two of your texts, right? Your, your That's book. right. And Bali Essence is done with my photography partner, Neoman. Obviously, Balinese, very, very talented Balinese photographer. So we combined our, our, our photograph and our experiences and, and put that book together. And I think that's the first time... Uh, non-Balinese and Balinese have put their talents together and put a book of photography, you know, Perfect. photography together. And the other one, Looking for Borneo, is actually is based on a story written by Mark Haywood, who's an Australian who's lived in Indonesia about 30-odd years and wrote a book called Crazy Little Heaven. And then he, we started talking one day and he said, I want to take my books and your photographs. Oh. And my friend uh, Khan, who's a very good drawer, painter, so we, we took Khan's drawings, my photographs, and Mark's words. And combined and all together, Combined right? it together, and it's called Looking for Borneo. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful. So I think just to, to, to finish off, do you have, you know, you talk a lot about inspirations where I know you like to, uh, for you it's to inspire people to travel, to inspire people to, to photograph. Um, do you have any message you'd like to, if you had a message from your experience now of what you've been doing with it, it can be a specific message on indige indigenous cultures or it can be a, a broad message. What would the, the message be out there to the world? Well, look, I just think act, you know, get out there and do something, you know, whatever that, whatever that is that, that matters to you as an individual. Mm. Um, and of course that's very general and everyone's got their own things going on and everything else and of course there's a lot of people out there doing many many wonderful things but but i think this thing where like i said before what jane goodall said about apathy i think this is a real killer and i think that there's so much that people can do individually and as you say before like the age of information there's so much information but don't get overwhelmed by it mm. you know focus on that one thing um and and yeah and, and for me and what i can pass on from my experiences and what I've learned now on this journey is there's so much more satisfaction from giving. Mm. And I got caught up in that world in, in Australia and I, you know, I was a general manager and earned good money and all that and I kind of fooled myself that I was happy with that. But compared to my life now, giving back and, and, and doing all these projects and working with these incredible young people, oh my God, it's just a totally different world. And this one message I can pass on is... You know, is, is yeah, get, get out there and, and, and get it amongst the, and support the people and you'll, you'll get so much satisfaction from it um, and so much, I think, happiness and, and balance within yourself too, I think, mm, you know, mm, that's mm. important also. Okay, well, David Metcalf, thank you very much and we'll do it again soon. Thank you. Okay, great. Thanks. Thank you very Thanks, much David. too. Some great thank questions. You. Thank you.